Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to um, John's Gospel, chapter 12. Let's pray. Lord David said that you search us and you know us. You know everything we think before we think it. You know when we get up and when we sit down. We can't quite grasp that kind of thinking and that kind of knowledge. But how grateful we are that you know everything about us and you still love us. And with that said, you desire to invest in us as your kids, your children, week by week, truth by truth, line upon line. And so we dedicate this time as worship. We've set it aside as worship. And that worship includes our, our minds, engaging our minds, as well as uh, every bit of us. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak once again, speak clearly through the pages and the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Doing the right thing doesn't come easy for some people. You can just ask the IRS and they'll tell you that every year they have people who have some interesting excuses as to why they shouldn't file their tax returns. According to one IRS source, uh, one woman from Florida had a creative excuse. Um, It was tax season and she informed the IRS that she just wasn't in the mood this year to file. Those were her words. But then she promised the IRS agent that the following year she would file two returns. That didn't go over very well. They just said, we suggest you get in the mood now. One man wrote the IRS a letter and said, please take me off your mailing list. (laughs) That's thinking. Didn't work. And finally, they say that once in New York City in tax court, when Judge Dawson was presiding, one person had the nerve to say, as God is my judge, I do not owe this tax. And the judge said, he's not, I am, you do, next case. (laughs) I want to talk to you about doing right. And not just doing right, but being right, living right. What is the right way to live? Dennis Prager traveled for years around the United States and spoke to high school groups. And uh, he asked them a question, and he was doing this for his own research. The question was simple. In an emergency situation, would you save the life of your dog or a stranger first? Would you save the life of a dog or the life of a stranger first? He said, almost without exception, the kid said, I would save the life of my dog. And he asked them why. And they simply replied, well, I love my dog. I don't love the stranger. And what Prager was putting together is that what is good is defined as what I feel. There is no higher moral or standard to appeal to than simply how I feel. What I feel is right. 
is right. So I decided to look up in the dictionary the definition of right, and I went to my online dictionary, dictionary dictionary.com, and they defined it as what is in accordance with what is good and proper, and the conformity with fact and reason. The conformity with fact and reason. Well, that interested me. So I decided to compare that dictionary definition with the definition of Webster's 1828 edition, the first edition. And that edition was closer to the biblical definition of what is right. You might be surprised that the dictionary said this. It's according to the standard of truth and justice or the will of God. That's in a dictionary. That alone is right in the sight of God, which is consonant to His will or law, this being the only standard of truth and justice. My, have things changed on our landscape in just over 150 years. What is right? Living right. I want to warn you that living right is not easy and it's not comfortable. And if you do so, you walk the less traveled road. To live right means you will sometimes have to put away what feels good or feels right to you. You have to push that aside. You'll have to decide on something that is far less glamorous. It doesn't always feel good now, but it will feel great later. On Monday, tomorrow morning, when the alarm goes off at whatever time that is for you, when that alarm goes off, that annoying sound rings in your ear. Do you hop out of bed and go, goody, yippee, I get to go to work? (laughs) You might. You might do that. I'm scared of you if you do, but you might. (laughs) But probably you don't. Probably what you do is you defer the momentary pleasure of laying in bed and lingering and enjoying it to the eventual pleasure of collecting the paycheck. You go to work. If it's Saturday and your wife comes to you with that look, guys, or that tone of voice and says, I think you need to clean the garage. It's really messy. And that happens at the time you just turn on the game. What do you do? Well, if you're smart, you're going to clean the garage. Why? Because when mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. Just go do it. You'll be happier in the long run. You can TiVo that baby and get to it or get the score online. However, it's much, it's much deeper than collecting a paycheck or making a person happy. Doing what is right, back to Webster's dictionary, is living in such a way that is consonant to the will of God. Well, we're in chapter 12, and we continue our story from last week as Jesus came into Jerusalem. It's Passover time. There's crowds of people that have gathered from all over the world. And there's one special group that wants to see Jesus. They want a private audience with Him. In the midst of this Passover week, and in the midst of this little paragraph we're reading, there are three things that are right, and all together make living the right life, the right pursuit, the right provision, and the right priorities. And all three together blend beautifully in helping us live the right way. Here's the first one, the right pursuit. We begin in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip 
who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Okay, now we don't know who these Greeks are. We don't know their names. We don't know exactly why they're in Jerusalem or why they want to see Jesus. A, here's a possibility. They were spiritual Greeks. That is, they had turned from paganism. They were really interested in the God of Israel. And there was a group known among the Jews uh, that were Gentiles. And they were called God-fearers. God-fearers. And God-fearers are those who had left paganism. They hadn't become circumcised. They were interested in attending the synagogue. And so they could have come to Passover for spiritual reasons. Option number two, these guys were secular Greeks. They were curious about the philosophy that Jesus might espouse. I discovered by reading this week that uh, at this time, the Greeks generally were known as wanderers who would go almost anywhere to pick up the latest, newest philosophy to add to their cadre of philosophical beliefs. Uh, There was one Greek writer that even said, You men of Athens have no rest. Give yourselves no rest, and you don't give anybody else any rest. They were just searching, perhaps, for some new philosophy from Jesus. Do you remember when Paul went to Athens, Greece, and he preached? That's Acts 17. We're told this by the author, Luke. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Sounds like a university campus. We just want to hear something new, something different, something way out. They had gathered in Athens, these Greeks, just to hear something new. And it could be that these Greeks wanted to hear what Jesus had to offer in the philosophies of life. And so they came. For whatever reason, they want to see Jesus. And so who do they come to first, we're told? Philip. Why Philip? I don't know, but Philip is a Greek name. The father of Alexander the Great was Philip of Macedon. So that was a very prominent Greek name. By the way, Philip means lover of horses. And who doesn't love people who love horses? So they, they come to Philip. And, and um, John puts a note in there. Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Why does he do that? Here's why I think. Bethsaida of Galilee was right next to a huge Greek colonized area known as the Decapolis. And probably, I don't know for sure, but probably these Greeks at the Passover feast already had known Philip from Bethsaida and they spotted him. They had some kind of a um, relationship with him, knowledge of him, acquaintance with him. And so they saw him and go, hey, we want to see Jesus. So he told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There's something else that I think is vital John is the only gospel author that inserts this story of the seeking Greeks. The others do not. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not include it. John does include it. And that's because that's, that's central to a message John is trying to get across. Here's what John wants us to know. Jesus Christ was not only the Redeemer for Israel and the Jews, but the entire world, including Gentiles. And that's why John 3.16 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why we have John chapter 4, where the Samaritans rightly say he's the savior of the world. John includes that. So here's what I think John wants us to see. At this time, before Jesus' death, as, as the doors are closing, the doors of formal Judaism are closing to Jesus, the doors of Gentile opportunity are opening to Jesus. And that's going to continue through the book of Acts as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't you find it fascinating that at the beginning of Jesus' life, wise men from the east came looking for Jesus. At the end of his life, wise men from the west come. As if to bookend the life, Gentiles are coming to seek him. So they say, we want to see Jesus or We'd like a private audience with them. That's the idea. They just didn't want to look at him and see what he looked like so they could like paint a picture of him. It's like when you go to a doctor and you say, I'm here to see Dr. Green. I'll tell you a little story. It's it's true, but it, it was a mean gesture. When I was training in radiology back in California years ago at the hospital I was at, it was late one evening. The emergency room was packed. One of these doctors, these hotshot interns, were just getting off work, and he decided to go into the emergency room and say, how many of you are here to see a doctor? And they all raised their hands. And he goes, well, you've seen one. And he turned and walked away. That's cold, isn't it? We want to see Jesus. We don't want to just see him physically. We want a chance to have a meeting with him. So these Greeks are making the right pursuit The right pursuit. We're told in John that the Jews were saying, we want to see a sign. The Greeks are saying, forget the sign, we just want to see Jesus. That's the right pursuit. Let me let you in on something. In the earlier days of England and in the early days of America, many pulpits in those countries had a verse etched in the front of the pulpit so the preacher could see it when he walked into the pulpit. And it was this verse. Put in the King James Version, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it was placed in many pulpits, and I preached in some of those pulpits with those signs. It's so that when the the preacher would walk into the pulpit, he would be reminded, give people Jesus. Don't give them your opinion or give them something short of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sir, we would see Jesus. But here's my point. To live right, you need the right pursuit. What are you pursuing? What is your passion? That's a common word these days. My passion is this, or I'm all about this. What is your master passion? What are you seeking above all else? You might have many wonderful pursuits in this life. All could be noble and noteworthy. But first and foremost, it needs to be Christ. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. I suppose the complimentary verse from the Old Testament is Psalm 27, where David writes, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. So, number one, the right pursuit. Because whatever you aim at is what you're going to hit. Ask a carpenter. Carpenters don't watch the thumb and finger of the holding the nail. They watch the head of the nail. Because if you watch the thumb, you're going to hit the thumb. You watch the finger, you're going to hit the finger. You watch the nail, that's what you're going to hit. 
You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep seeking him and pursuing him. That's the right pursuit. That's number one. Number two, the right provision. Now, they say we want to see Jesus. These two disciples go and they tell Christ about it. The answer that Jesus gives is not what we would expect. What would you expect? Well, put yourself in the situation. Somebody comes to you and says, Hey, there's a group of Greeks that want to talk to you. You'd probably say, Cool, great. I'd like to talk to Greeks. They make great baklava and my big fat Greek wedding. I remember there's a lot of good food in that movie. I'd, I'd like to talk to the Greeks. That's what I'd say. But Jesus says something astonishing. In fact, in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. I imagine that when he said that, a hush of expectancy fell over that crowd. Their hearts skipped a beat. Here's why. Remember where we've come from in our story. Jesus has just what? Come from the Mount of Olives on a donkey with palm leaves thrown at his feet and, and, and clothing thrown all over his people, said, Hosanna, this is the Son of God. This is the King of Israel, the Son of David. And uh, he fulfilled Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9. So this big hubbub of activity and anticipation as for the very first and only time in Jesus' ministry, he allows himself to be presented as their Messiah. And then he stops and he says... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what was going through the disciples' minds when he said that? They're thinking one thing. He's going to set up his kingdom now. The hour has come. Because remember, up to this point, he's been saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. That's for later. Now he says, My hour has come. Son of Man is going to be glorified. They're thinking, okay, this is it. He's going to set up the kingdom. Now, it's going to help me if I tell you what the disciples were thinking 2,000 years ago. And I know this because all Jews 2,000 years ago had a fixed eschatology in their heads, in their hearts. Or they believed certain things about how the end of times, the coming of the Messiah would unfold. Number one, according to their thinking, according to their study, there would... The coming of Messiah would be preceded by a time of horrible turmoil in their land. They believed that the Roman occupation of Israel fulfilled that for them. Number two, in the midst of the turmoil, an Elijah-like forerunner would come pointing the way to Messiah. That's why people clamored over John the Baptist and said, Are you Elijah? Number three, after the forerunner, the Messiah would show up, would defeat his enemies would bring in the kingdom. And number four, all of the scattered Jewish people around the world would return to the land of Israel and Jerusalem would be set up as the center of world peace. So when Jesus stops after coming into Jerusalem and the Greeks want to see him, and the first thing he says is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Their hopes shot up immediately. They were expecting he's going to set up the kingdom. Also, because he refers to himself, if you'll notice, as the Son of Man. Did you see that in verse 23? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. 
If that has ever confused you as to how and why Jesus uses that, it's a messianic term. It comes right out of the book of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision at night, a glorious vision of the coming of the Son of Man, he writes. The Son of Man being ushered before the throne of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, with holy angels. And it says, of the Son of Man, and I quote Daniel 7.14, He, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So they're going, yes! They're psyched. They're about to be let down. Have you ever been so amped, so psyched, and then something happens and you just go, okay, that's about to happen. Verse 24, he continues, Most assuredly, I say to you, and they're going, yeah, I'm all ears. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, if the first statement raised their hopes, the second statement shattered their hopes. You had to pick these disciples off the ground after verse 24. Because suddenly Jesus is talking to them about a different kind of a king, not one who will rule by conquest, but one who will rule by his own death. The analogy he gives was plain and simple, and they got it. Jesus is saying, I've come to die the death of a cross and then resurrection. Think of the illustration. It's simple. You have a, in your hand a, a kernel of grain, a grain of wheat. It's... It's there. It can't do you any good in your hand. You don't really see or realize its potential in your hand. But during planting season, you put it in the cold, dark earth. A tomb, if you will. And there it sits in the tomb of the earth. And as nature takes its course and it gets some moisture, it begins to rot and decay and the encasement cracks open and out eventually comes the resurrection, the plant. And as the plant grows, it brings forth much fruit. One source that I read said, if it's a good seed, each grain contains the potential of a million similar offspring. So it's easy to see what he's saying. Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead. And the result of the death and resurrection is going to be millions of people around the world being saved. So here's the Greeks pursuing Jesus, but here's Jesus pursuing the provision for their sins and the sins of the whole world. There's a point I want to make here. It's very important to living right. If you're going to live right, you need the right pursuit, and that is to pursue Christ. But you must first pursue him as your savior, the one who came to die for your sin and for my sin. See, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, he's cool. I'm into Jesus. Jesus, I want him as my friend. I want him as my chaperone. I want him as sort of the guy who's there whenever I need help. I visit him once a week when I have time. That's Jesus. Oh, no. Jesus must first be the one that you confront and are willing to take all of the sin that you have committed and transfer it to him by faith. Trusting that his finished work on the cross, that provision, was enough before God. 
That's what the angel said. When he announced the birth of Jesus, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So it's good to pursue Jesus, but you must first and foremost pursue him as Savior. If you want to live the right life, it's the right pursuit. It's the right provision. And number three, it's the right priorities. Verse 25 and 26 is where we end this this morning. Now, this is what he does. Jesus gives the principle about himself, like a seed, dying, coming back, resurrection. And he takes that principle and he now applies it to us, to his followers. That that same principle of self-sacrifice, of death to self, is now transferred to us. Verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me where I am. There my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now what does Jesus mean when he says to hate your life? Does that mean you should wake up every day and cultivate a real hatred, an antipathy toward life? That you get up grumpy and growly? You, you go, I hate life. I hate it. Really? Why? Well, Jesus said I'm supposed to hate it. I hate it. I just want to die and go to heaven. Get out of here. And that's not a good, that's not the joy of the Lord last time I checked. To hate something was often a Hebrew idiom to prefer one thing over something else. And the preference would be so distinct that it's like comparing love and hatred. That's how steep the preference would become. There's two words you should know about. I want you to look at them both in verse 25. Both translated life. But there's two different Greek words in the original. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. That word life happens to be the Greek word psuche. Psuche. It's hard to say psuche. It means the psyche, the mental life. And the Greeks refer to it as the ego The self-focused life. It's the person who focuses all of the attention on the temporary, physical life. Well, if you do that, if you love his life, you'll lose it. And then he says, he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see that life, that end of the sentence, life? Different word. Translated the same, different word. It's the word zoe. Zoane ionion. Life everlasting. Life eternal. It's age-abiding life that's not just quantity, goes on and on and on, but quality of life. It's focused on God, focused on His will, like Webster's 1828 definition. In consonant with God's will. That's the kind of life. So let me sort of paraphrase this in my own as I break it apart. When you live for self-will, and your life is all consumed about your own will, your own comfort, your own physical, temporary life, you're going to lose it all. However, when you prefer what is right, even if you lose temporary pleasure, you'll get life. The focus completely changes. Now, I'm going to read to you a scripture that is a parallel passage that I think will help you understand what we've just read and considered. This is now Matthew 10. Don't have to turn to it. Just give me your ear for a moment. Jesus speaking says, If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. 
If you love your son or your daughter more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your own life, you will lose it. But if you give it up for me, you will find it. We call that a paradox. A statement that has an apparent contradiction to it. A paradox. Do you know that we live our whole Christian life in paradoxes? I'll give you a few. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So you know that. 2 Corinthians 12. Here's another one. To be rich, you must first become poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to rule, you must serve. If you humble yourself before God, He will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, He will humble you. Our whole life is lived on a paradox system or in the direct antithesis of how the world lives its life, what it values, what it lives for, what it's passionate about, what it pursues. And so here we have this paradox. We live by dying. Our potential will never be reached if we just stay a seed. We have to die to certain things. Just like the life that was in Christ wouldn't be able to escape that uh, ability to give life through the atoning death of Christ unless he was dead and put in a tomb for him to resurrect. Same principle. We live by dying. Folks, this is exactly the opposite of the world that you and I live in. Most people in the world are consumed with what they're going to eat, what their fashion looks like, what kind of pleasure they're going to have today, this week, next month. That's what they live. And you know why? It's simple. It's because they value the body more than the soul. If you value the soul more than the body, different choices are made. This is what Jesus is speaking about. You know, think, think about what it would sound like if a seed could talk, if it had a little mouth on it. And it could talk and express its feelings as you're taking it from the bunch of his friends and putting him in the cold, dark, stinky earth. You go, I hate this. I hate it. I hate it. But just wait, little seed. Just wait till springtime. Something wonderful is going to come up because of it. Fruit's going to happen all around you. So to bring life, there must be death. That's the principle. That's the paradox. Does the name George Mueller ring a bell? To some of you it does. George Mueller ran an orphanage in Bristol, England in the 1800s. He was very influential all over London for his education of children. Very well known. Somebody asked Mueller one day what the secret of his life was. You'll be interested to find out his answer. He said as he hung his head, Well, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller to his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. And I even died to the approval and the scorn of my friends and enemies. There came a day when I didn't care what anybody else thought of me, what anybody else's opinion of me was, or what even I preferred. I came, 1828, Webster's Dictionary, to be in consonant with God's will. That's the secret of my life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor who resisted Hitler, said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the principle I want to leave with you before we finish this up. That's the principle. 
You need the right pursuit. You pursue Christ. But you must pursue Christ as Savior. That's the provision. Then you must pursue Christ as your Lord and your Master. And here's the statement, and I want you to listen to it carefully. If Jesus Christ is just your Savior and not your Lord, don't expect to have a full and satisfying life. It won't happen. You want the right life, the full and satisfying life, even though there's pleasures that are deferred, even though it might even hurt and be uncomfortable. It's to pursue Christ as Savior and as Master for a full and satisfying and above all a right life. Look what happens when you do. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, get this, him my father will honor. Let that just sink in. My father will honor. How will God honor you if you do that? Well, besides giving you everlasting life, which ain't bad, how about this one? The joy of knowing that your life is honoring to God. The joy of knowing that your life is pleasing to God. We love celebrities in this country. We love to watch them get their awards. We watch what they wear. We think about their diets. We imagine what it would be like to be honored by so many people. But how about, push all that aside, being honored by God who gave even them life and breath, knowing that your life is pleasing to God. To be honored by God is to know that our life is being lived right, and it's so fulfilling. I was two weeks old as a Christian when the Lord first started working this principle into my life. Now, I say he first started. He's still, he's still at it. It's been a long time coming. He's still trying to work this principle out. But I was two weeks old as a Christian. I had just believed in Christ. I was 18, two weeks old in the Lord. And I started reading the New Testament. I needed an easy version, so I had the new English version, I think it was called. It was a little paperback New Testament. And I started at the beginning of the book, Matthew. I read 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Matthew. And then I came to the Beatitudes in chapter 5. And I read something that stopped me in my tracks. It read, and I'm quoting directly from that translation, Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God will satisfy them fully. God will satisfy them fully. When I first read that, it's like I stopped. Because I knew there were some things in my life that needed to die, that I needed to cut out if I wanted to have joy. I have a question for you. Is your life sort of stagnant? Are there? Would you say your spiritual potential is unrealized? I would submit to you to go home and examine what things need to die, what things need to be cut out and replaced with other things. You know the text. I know you do. Paul said, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that's a little bit different. A living sacrifice versus a dead sacrifice is different. Because the dead sacrifice just lays on the altar. Living sacrifices have a tendency to want to squirm off the altar once they're put there. I give you my life, Lord. Oh, I don't know about that. Right now I kind of want to do something else. And there's always that need to go back. A living sacrifice. That's why Paul said, 
I die daily. It's a daily process. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. I close with this. It's one of my favorite little quips. In in medieval Europe, there was a group of minstrels that loved to travel around. A minstrel was a musician or a poet and would perform with music around him. And this group of minstrels traveled from town to town in Europe. Well, the economy was tough, like it is for us these days. So people weren't showing up to entertainment shows like the minstrels were performing. And it was an afternoon before the evening performance. They had just arrived town. They were setting up. And one of the young minstrels said to the whole group, I say we just quit. I mean, last night there was only a handful of people who came and look outside the windows. It's snowing now. I'm sure hardly anyone at all will come tonight. I say we just give them their money back and not perform. Well, that sort of grumbling spread through the whole group rather quickly, as it often does, until one of the older, more experienced minstrels said, Now, wait a minute. I say we've come this far. We give it our best shot tonight. It might be our last performance, and we can talk about quitting tomorrow. But let's give this our best. So they did. And afterward, they all felt satisfied that they had given their best. To top it off, to top it off, Someone had handed a note to one of the minstrels. And when the minstrel came back to his band of fellow performers in the back room after, opened it up with trembling hands, he read it. It said, job well done, outstanding performance, signed, your king. They didn't know it. But that night in their audience of just a few people, their king, the king of their country, had been traveling through on business and happened to watch the performance. And now they could go to bed knowing that they honored their king and their king had honored them by saying, I loved it. What a payoff, isn't it? When Jesus will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I've watched your performance. Job well done. Because you lived right. Father in heaven, that's how we want to live our lives, with the right pursuit keeping Jesus front and center as we walk and run and aim our lives toward him, coming to know him for his provision as Savior, and coming to know him as our Master and Lord, the one who calls the shots, the one that we serve because wherever he is, that's where we are. We're following him, and we're doing it in faith knowing all the while that when we make such choices and form that kind of a worldview that dominates our life, that it's pleasing to you and that you honor us by giving us life eternal and the pleasure of knowing that we were pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.